Welcome to the Birthing Ad Pod- Podcast. This is a podcast about pregnancy, birth and early parenting. Yay! G'day, how's it going? I'm Steve from the Prepare Foundation. We are a registered charity that helps first-time dads make an awesome contribution at the birth of their child. This is a podcast where we get blokes talking about their experience to share their wisdom with other men who are about to go through the life-altering change that comes with first-time fatherhood. So let's hear about the transition of parenthood from a dad's perspective. Hello everyone, it's Stephen here again with the Birthing Dads podcast and today we have a very special guest coming to us from Warrnambool in southwest Victoria. How are you going, Matt? I'm very well, thanks, mate. How are you? Excellent. Uh, Now, Matt is the father of three children. One of them is no longer with us, and that is actually going to be a a lot of the topic of what we're speaking about today. So a bit of a content warning, let's say, a bit of a trigger warning around some of the, you know, pregnancy after loss and the loss of a a newborn. There's some things that we want to cover as... The Prepare Foundation, we want to provide resources for all dads who, uh, you know, might be going through loss, might be going through miscarriage, these kind of things, and uh, we'd like to just, yeah, have that conversation now. So uh, just opening up the the topic, I guess, uh, would we call you a father of three or a father of two? Absolutely, father of three. Yeah. Yep, every day yeah. of the week. Every day of the week, that's right. Um, and so how's fatherhood going? I love it. It's it's trying. I don't think you'll find a parent who'd say, oh, geez, it's a walk in the park. I love being a dad. It's fantastic. It's one of the best things. Being a dad to a three-and-a-half-year-old is probably very, very trying at times, but I wouldn't change it for the world. And how old's your, your other one? So I've got Edie, who's three-and-a-half. Ren, our second-born, uh, she passed away at eight days old. And we've got Noah, who is two months old today. Two months today, wow. So a newborn in the house and a three-and-a-half-year-old. you got your hands full, that's for sure. And we've got a three-and-a-half-year-old a three and a half year old who's trying to be a mum to a newborn. So that's how it's kind of working. We're trying to teach her that she's not mum, that she's actually a sister. But that's all right. I think that's something that most parents have to work through anyway. Yeah, very cute. I mean, it's a great problem to have. It is. Uh, quickly go through just a hot minute to, you know, kind of find out a little bit more about yourself. What kind of music are you listening to at the moment, Matt? Uh, if I'm at work, I tune into Triple M, so older music. But if I'm at home chilling out, I'll tune into maybe some Avicii or Swedish House Mafia from around that 2014 vintage. That was probably my better days of travelling around Europe. I'm still trying to live at home. So, yeah, a bit of older dance music then mix into the 80s. So nothing. And how about a movie, that, the first movie that comes to mind that you like? I don't watch a lot, but probably my favourite would be The Castle. Oh, yeah. So we're, we're talking probably a 25-year-old movie. Yeah, but I, th- I think that's kind of, it's crept into our everyday lives. I know myself when uh, my partner does a little drawing or something, I'll be like, oh, straight to the trophy room with that one. I'm sure there's a lot of blokes. If you grew up with it, you know it. Yeah. When was your last trip away? Melbourne. Okay. To the big smoke. A couple of weeks ago, I actually competed in a running event, Run Melbourne. So there was a there was a big charity uh, where I was part of a big charity team called Team Sylvie Sunshine. We raised money for a local charity and also completed my first half marathon, which was amazing. Congrats. That's amazing. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about the charity? 
so charity's called We've Got You. It's one that I'm involved in here in Warrnambool. I think we're, we're fundraising to set up a bereavement room here at our local hospital. That's our first and foremost. Our, our main goal is to set up a bereavement room, which is nearly all ticked off. Uh, one of the, It's going to be one of the first non-metro bereavement rooms you know, in, a, in, a, in a regional hospital anywhere in Victoria or Australia. I don't believe there's many of these things being set up anywhere out of a city. So it's for parents and families to spend time with their child or loved one if they've passed away. And that's what we're really keen on setting up at the moment. And we're nearly there with the help of the local hospital, Southwest Healthcare here in Warrnambool, the community and local businesses too. It's been amazing. Well, congratulations. That sounds sounds like it's a really good initiative. Congratulations, mate. I think, and on that, I think uh, through Run Melbourne, the team that I was involved in is called Team Sylvie Sunshine. $47,000 they raised or we raised as part of the team that will go directly towards the room. There was 250-plus people part of our team running at Run Melbourne, uh, raised the second most amount of money out of all the teams, which is phenomenal for a girl, a little girl called Sylvie who passed away 10 years ago. Her family's created this in their honour and it was just amazing to be part of. Amazing. Yeah, that sounds great. I'm going to put that in the show notes for sure. Where would you visit if money was no issue? San Sebastian. Lovely. I've been there a couple of times when I was travelling and I'd go straight back. And who would you like to invite to dinner? I think it's a pretty easy one. I'd probably bring, I'd, I'd, I'd have Ren. Oh, of course, yes. Yeah. I was thinking about that. And what would I what would I cook? Well, she'd be 14 months old now, so I'd probably have to have my wife there. And we'd probably, for her, we'd probably have a little bit of breast milk and some mushy peas, something simple. That's amazing. Beautiful. What would you like to hear your 20-year-old progeny say about you, a 20-year-old child? say about you oh dad still gives me the best hugs lovely good answer (laughs) what was your favorite job in your life i've had a few i'm probably doing it now i work in like operations type of role i like organizing i like telling people what to do and the role i'm in it's probably it's probably the longest i've ever had a job in i've about 35 i've been Sick into my seventh year now, so it's the longest I've ever held down a job. So let's just say this one: if for, for if my boss ever watches as well, I guess that this is my favourite job. Yeah, just covering the bases there. You reckon? Yep, tick that box. Yeah. <laughs> if you're ever going to write a book, what would it be about? It'd probably be on what we touch on through this next forty minutes. I've had ideas of writing books on grief and grief journeys from a father's perspective and a dad's perspective. I'm not the best at writing. I journal a lot. Maybe one day I might be able to put all that journaling together. And if I was going to do something, it would be a, probably a book on loss and, and and trying to navigate through loss as well. Yeah, well, that makes that's a pretty good segue into, I guess, one of my first questions. How did you navigate that, uh, like your own mental health? You know, I mean, it's a pretty open-ended kind of question, but how did you look after your mental health after Ren was born? Oh, I didn't for a little while because I was a dad and I thought dad's role was to look after mum and look after bubs. And we had a, uh, Edie was two and a half at the time. I spent all my time trying to look after my wife and trying to look after Edie. And I had to because we had a Caesar for Ren and my wife couldn't lift. She couldn't carry. I, I needed to do everything for her. So for six weeks, I felt pretty good. 
I felt like, oh, I'm actually not good. Like I still miss rent all the time, but I kind of found myself a little bit too busy to kind of really comprehend what we'd been through. After six weeks come along when Maddie could start driving and, and lifting and doing that thing, I thought, oh, dear, this is pretty bad. I need to get some help. So I spoke to my wife and we doctor's appointment, psychologist, uh, got referred to just a local, through the local GP, uh, mental health plan, in to see a local psychologist, a local, so a local counsellor. At the same time, I got linked in through a red nose counsellor too. And I think I seen a third one at one stage here. It all happened at once. All of a sudden, I went from zero to three in two or three weeks. So I was pretty lucky. And then from that, I kind of just made sure that I always checked in with counselling, did that thing. I also started getting to the gym a bit more. I, I like going to the gym a couple of times a week, and that's one thing that I wanted to do straight away is to keep fit or to try and stay fit. Probably one of the best things I did is I went and started going ocean, swimming in the ocean in the middle of the winter with a mate. He hit me up and said, oh, you should come down every Sunday morning. I'll go jump in the ocean. He goes, it's really good for you. So I started doing that as well. So from early on, that's what I I knew that I'd need help after that six week was up because I was falling in a hole. So I kind of just did whatever I could, counselling a psychologist or swimming or running or whatever I could because I knew if I didn't, I'd be stuck in this rut and I wouldn't get out of the grief circle. Yeah, I, I knew I needed to do something. So I, I tried as hard as I could to do something because it had to be me that did it. It couldn't be someone else fixing me. Yeah, and so I guess this is kind of a loaded question. I was just about to ask this question, which is, and how about your partner? But I think for dads in your situation, I feel like sometimes that's a bit of a loaded question because isn't everyone asking about your partner rather than about you? Yeah, a, a lot of t- a lot of the time it is, and it's not it's not in a bad way. It's not meaning any malice. Um, that's just what it is. It's mum had the baby. How's how's mum? Where I found it was hard is when sometimes I'd hear that how's mum, and it'd take away from the fact that Ren was my daughter too. And that's that's where I started to feel like I always want to be Ren's dad. I always want to be referred to as Ren's dad, like I'm referred to as Edie's dad and now Noah's dad. I want to be Ren's dad. I don't just want no disrespect to my wife. She's amazing. I didn't want her just to be Ren's mum. I also wanted to be and also want to be Ren's dad for my entire life. So that's, yeah, I don't mind the question about how's mum. Mum's doing really well. Mum's, yeah. It's I can't imagine what she's had to go through. I know what she's been through, and she's held herself together phenomenally. Lucky we've got good supports and good fam- great family nearby to help us. But yeah, Mum's good, and and I'm good too. It's because we we allowed people in to help us. It's probably the main thing. Yeah, accepting accepting offers as help of help is yeah, it's fundamental, isn't it? Yeah, and it wasn't. I think I was most scared that. I liked, you know, I'm a dad, I've, I should be able to fix something. It took a fair bit like, for me to realise that I couldn't fix this. Like, it's there's no fixing. Like, once you've lost a child, you, you can't fix that. You, you, you learn to live with that. So when I realised that I had to live with it, that was the moment that I'm like, oh, okay, well, how do I live with it? What have I got to do to be able to get up and go to work and to function as a dad? And when I realised that I couldn't fix it, that's when I started to see I guess the sunshine again, you know, a bit, bit more happiness and realise that, you know, there's other people that have been through it 
and they're happy. There's a way to get through, manage your feelings, still be sad but happy. Can I ask you, when you say you wanted to fix it, what what is it you're trying to fix, the mental anguish? The I just wanted to, you wanted to fix it. You just want to feel like you can be fixed magically. You know, you've got a broken arm, you fix it. I wanted to be able to fix that feeling of loss. I didn't want to f- feel like I'd, I wanted to feel like it was better when I really, I, I quickly realised that you can't fix it. You've, you learn to live with it and you find ways to manage with it, manage living with it. And they make it okay. Like you can, I still think about rent all the time. I still talk about it all the time, but I still live in, I live a normal life. It's, you can juggle, you can be sad and happy at the same time. Are you planning to attend the birth of your child? Well, the safest scenario is you're calm, relaxed, and know how to provide physical, emotional, and practical support. The worst case scenario is you have no idea and end up looking like a deer in the headlights. Bitch, you bruh. Don't be a deer in the headlights, mate. Birthing Dads has a suite of groundbreaking resources designed to give you a confidence boost ahead of the big day. And the best part, it's all on demand and 100% online. Go to birthingdads.com.au and use the coupon code POD, that's P-O-D, for a 10% discount and learn how to support birth like a superstar. So going into, you know, the story of, of Ren's birth and, you know, the pregnancy, do you want to just take us through a little bit about the pregnancy and, and uh, perhaps the story of, of Ren's birth? Of course, yeah. I might, just to set this, the tone, I'll, I'll start with Edie so I don't forget her. She'll want her little snippet, I guess. So Edie was, we had uh, not massive issues with conception, but we were seeing uh, just a local obstetrician here to, to get a little bit of a help along the way, ovulation induction. So that was fine at work. We had to, Maddie had to take some a few of the um, injections and triggered and we were lucky we fell pregnant the first time. We were so lucky. We didn't realise how lucky we were. It was, it was quite a simple process. Pregnancy went well, 37 weeks, few reduced movements and went in. They said, okay, We've had it a few times now. Induction today is fine. So that's what we, about what, what the day or the next day is fine. So that's what we did. Edie was born at 37 weeks on the dot. Vaginal birth, no issues, beautiful, healthy little girl. That's it. Edie's now three and a half. And we moved to, I think you, you get to that point where you think, all right, it's time now. You get sick of people saying, oh, when are you having another one? Because you've had one. I expect you to have two. Then rude little questions about being a parent again and, and little siblings, there's always something. We, we got to a time we were just halfway through building a house and we just fell pregnant with Ren. Just there was a bit of potluck, I think, and all of a sudden Maddie was pregnant. Pretty good pregnancy too. It was There was nothing untoward. First pregnancy, Maddie had gestational diabetes. Second one didn't. We just kind of cruised through. It was obviously a bit harder with a toddler or a two-year-old running around. Brings us to the day that Rem was born. There'd been nothing untoward the whole pregnancy. It was Good Friday last year, 2022, Good Friday, about lunchtime. I can remember as I've just got I can remember as clear as day. The sirens are outside, Good Friday appeal. So here in Victoria, we do the big fundraiser for the Royal Children's Hospital on Good Friday. So fire trucks will drive around and they will donate money and they'll raise Millions and millions and millions of dollars for the Royal Children's Hospital on Good Friday. So I can remember the sirens from, you know, the fundraising that happening. And about midday, um, my wife said, oh, we've got, 
just this stabbing pain in my in the abdomen. So we did the right thing, went up to the hospital. My wife's a midwife too, which I hadn't mentioned. So the hospital that we went to is actually her workplace. So we went to her work because you're meant to go to the hospital if you've got any questions. She went up there, got checked out, and were there being monitored for three or four hours. And Ren wasn't really playing the game at the time. So they said, right, let's let's have an induction. We'll start it now if you're happy. She was 38 and one. So she was we lasted a little bit longer than 80. There was nothing to be worried about. So induction started. They it progressed pretty quickly. It was no messing around. At about 11 o'clock at night, there's a bit of tension in the room. It wasn't really progressing. It was, you know, I don't want to say something that it's like wrong, but because I'm not a medical backgrounded person, but I could tell something just wasn't wasn't quite right. Not that I could predict what was about to happen, but yeah, there was a bit more anticipation of like we think it's nearly time we've got to hurry this along a little bit and and get the little baby out, and then. At about 20 past 11, I heard some words that were probably the worst words. I knew what they meant, and it was a cord prolapse, which meant the umbilical cord comes out, um, which means you've got to birth very quickly to make sure there's no damage done to bubs. Unfortunately, 22-12 Good Friday, Regional Hospital doesn't have a 24-hour theatre and it doesn't have a 24-hour anaesthetist. What they've got is theatre staff, who are on call, and they've also got an anaesthetist who are on call. So they've pushed us up to theatre, and we got there, and the lights were off. It was – we were just sitting there waiting for theatre staff. A doctor was holding the umbilical cord, trying to take care of it as as the procedures were as, as they're meant to do, um, and we just sat there and waited. felt like an eternity. We were just sitting waiting for staff to arrive. They went into theatre, being the dad, I had to wait outside. Um, so I was waiting in the corridor and they took my wife in when all the staff got there. Cord prolapse was 20 past 11. Her birth was at 11.57, so 35-plus minutes from prolapse to birth meant that she needed to be resuscitated. She was intubated. So on a ventilator, resuscitated, and at about 12.30, I'm sitting out in the corridor, so I, I didn't know what was happening. I was just stuck. I thought I knew I knew it was bad. I knew it was really bad, but I didn't I didn't know how bad. I just, in the back of my head, I just thought our daughter's, our daughter or son, we didn't know what we're having. I thought they're, they're dead. I, I thought they're, that's what I thought. I'm just sitting here looking at a clock. But how, how did you how did you know that, you know, like a, you, firstly, like for the listeners, just a little bit about uh, cord prolapse. Yep. What do you know about that now? It's not ideal. Um, it's not what you want. It's when the cord so would, I guess, come out um, before the baby. That's really what it is. And when it is out, the baby can't get the blood and the oxygen that it's meant to from the from the mum to the baby. Um, it needs to be tucked inside to do its serve its function so all of that time you're you're pretty much in the state of mind that you'd lost your child i was yeah i i'd, I'd resigned to the fact that that my child had, had passed away and as the, the minutes kept on ticking i still was it was about 12 30 and i still hadn't heard i was still sitting out in the corridor and i still hadn't heard what 
had happened. I, I knew what had happened, but I didn't know if I had a baby boy or a baby girl or a an alive or a dead. It was, yeah, yeah, it's one of the hardest things for me to take is I had, there was a bloody clock there as well. And I remember sitting there when we first got there, there's a clock. Anytime I think about it, I get taken back to this one clock just up in the, yeah. So I guess it was, it was about 12.30, one of the midwives come out, who was a friend of mine, and I just said, what, what's happened? Like what? And they said, you've got a girl. I said, oh, Ren, beautiful. And how, is she, how is she? Because that's, I didn't know. And they said, she's alive. So I just broke down in tears. I thought, we've done it. We've got it, you know. That's, I thought she was alive. They brought her out. Oh, she was alive. They intubated her and they took her, brought her out in the corridor and there I was, I got to see her for the first time and she had a lot of tubes and monitoring on and I was under the impression being a little bit naive that it was all going to be okay. I hadn't heard otherwise. I followed her back to, I guess, the maternity ward into the recess room and had a bit of a look and I'm like, oh, beautiful, you know, she's breathing and that's good. So I thought that, oh, They've managed to do this. This is fantastic. An hour or so later, I went and visited my wife, who she ended up having a GA Caesar, so she was completely knocked out for it. What's a GA Caesar? A general anaesthetic, I believe. So they completely, she's, yeah, not just the local or anything, not, yeah, just completely knocked out. So I went down and seen her an hour or so later and said, oh, look, I've, we've got a little girl and I think she's okay. Cool. I know I knew in the back of my mind that we weren't out of the woods, but I didn't I don't think I really wanted to. I didn't want to believe that I was just happy that we had a little girl and that she'd made it after that pretty traumatic birth or very traumatic birth. My wife got wheeled back down to the maternity ward and got taken down there. I, I decided to call my parent my mum because I'm like, I need I need some help. Like this is pretty full on. Right. And this is the bit that gets me a lot is that phone call to a parent say hey I need help knowing that nothing they could do could help me so I knew I had to call mum and say can you come to the hospital because I've you know something's gone wrong so she come in my wife's mum come in too and told them what had happened so I've kind of said hey congratulations to your grandma your, your nanny again but here's what we're looking at this is this has happened and when we got Maddie down there and showed her, her daughter and and everything and then the peds doctor come and had a bit of a chat he said it's not good would you like to palliate here in Warrnambool so that was at that moment we're like oh shit like so three o'clock in the morning three hours after she was born we got asked if we wanted to say goodbye in Warrnambool. And that was the moment where we're like, you know, this is, uh, yeah, what's what's going on? A couple of moments later, he, he did say, he's, I've been speaking to the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne, and they said, yep, we're willing to fly to Melbourne, cool her, actively cool. So they cool baby down for three days to give the brain and the body the best chance of recovery or seeing how it is. They're willing to give her a chance. So at 3 o'clock in the morning we decided, yep, We'd, we've got this far. The, the least we can do for Ren is just to let her decide for us if she's going to, if she's 
how she's going to pull through if she's going to pull through. So about six o'clock in the morning, she got loaded up onto an aeroplane here in Warrnambool and she flew to Melbourne. So that was, I guess, Ren's, that's Ren's birth story, I guess. Yeah. And that's, it's, it's interesting going back to and having a bit of a talk about it after not telling it for a while. It does get easier to tell in time. I know it's pretty, it's a bit full on, but yeah, that was, that was Ren's little story. Um, flew to Melbourne and yeah, we followed her down as soon as we could. And so, please, if you can, keep keep on going. And and uh, you know, we get to Melbourne. She's uh, been cooled. So I fell asleep for an hour, I think, in the morning. We've been up all night, so fell asleep for a little bit. My wife is in recovery because she just had major abdominal surgery. Obviously, the GACs is not kind on the body. So she couldn't drive. She couldn't travel. I jumped in the car with my dad. And we drove to Melbourne. So it was Easter Saturday. We drove to Melbourne about five o'clock at night and we're still in COVID times as well. So the back end of COVID, he dropped me off at the hospital. I had to go to the desk like on my own and say, hey, where's the butterfly ward? Where do we go? What do I do? They said, oh, here you go. Here's your COVID test. So I had to then go have a COVID test, go and sit out the front of the hospital, do a COVID test. If I tested positive, I wouldn't have been allowed in. Luckily, I tested negative. So then I went up in Royal Children's. It was a pretty daunting place as a dad, I guess, on my own without my wife going to see my daughter who's not even 24 hours old. So I went up to Butterfly and I broke down when I got to the front desk just because I was shitting myself. I was too nervous. I didn't. I knew what I wanted. I wanted to go and see her, but I didn't know how to ask that because I hadn't told anyone what had happened to my daughter. So that was my first conversation with someone was, I'm here to see my, and then I just burst into tears and I had to go out and regroup and come back in. And I got to a room and the doctors were in there. So I've seen a nurse and the nurse said, you know, this is what they're doing. She's been really good. We've just carried on the, what they started in your local hospital. We haven't changed anything. They've done an amazing job, what they've done. We've just followed on from what they started, which for me was fantastic. It means she's had the best care she could have possibly have from the moment she was born to she got to hospital in Melbourne. So I had to go then and sit in a little corner for a couple of minutes. And this doesn't make much of a difference to the story, but the second person I've seen was another nurse from, she was actually a, an old family friend I hadn't seen for 10 years and she worked in there. So the second person I've seen in the Royal Children's Hospital was a, a lady that I knew. So I just remember giving her a big hug and just, crying and you know it was it was really important because I was on my own just to know someone who was there as well got into a room finally and there she was she was Ren just sitting there she had a ventilator she had a ventilator and brains monitoring and and all that thing so she could they could monitor her for seizures and that type of thing and we just had a nurse there and she was an old English lady and she was just phenomenal it was like it was like having another mum there she was just a, she was just an amazing person um, and from the moment I walked into that room, I just felt comfortable. And as I told my wife, I thought, this lady's incredible. Her name's, I, I don't know if I can use names, her name's Pam. She's a phenomenal, amazing lady. And we're so lucky to have her that first night. So we really spent, I spent that night just sitting there talking to Pam, talking to doctors, and nothing was changing for a couple of days. My wife then they managed to get her a transfer, so she went to the Royal Women's next door to the Royal Children's. So she come down that night. I was staying at um, just a, a relative's place, my aunt's place nearby. 
two o'clock in the morning, my wife calls and said, oh, I need to go to the hospital. So I went and picked her up and drove to the hospital and she got to see Ren again. And then she was happy with, she got to meet Pam and the nurses and seeing that she was okay. I guess for the next few days, we just, there was, there was nothing we could do. We were just at the hospital as much as we could. We read books and told stories and we Zoom called people and introduced her to our families. She hadn't met anyone yet because she couldn't. And then a couple of days in, about the Wednesday, they did an MRI scan. So the MRI was to see what the damage was, see if the brain damage, if she was going to be able to live really. So I guess in the background, my wife and I are having a conversation about what type of life would we like her to have, which is a, it's a pretty full-on conversation that you've got to have, not like you're talking about the things that you shouldn't have to talk about. Like if we get, if it's up to us to make a decision, what do we want for her um, in her life and what's fair for us and what's fair for our family and our daughter, Edie. Um, so we had to make all them we were preparing to make all these decisions when we were in hospital um, about what we wanted and we decided that she had to have no pain and a little and, and she had to have a bit of a, a quality of life as well. We didn't want her to be forever dependent upon us for everything that she needed to do. As it turned out, on the Thursday, we got the MRI results back. We didn't, we didn't have to make the decision. The MRI results had made the decision for us that it was, it was, it's, it's one word that sticks out, catastrophic is how they described it, which meant that unfortunately you can fix or help out a lot of other organs in the body. But when it comes to the brain, there's not much you can do. She wasn't going to be able to live. Did you have someone guiding you in those conversations? Was there someone like a social worker or something nearby? We had social workers in the hospital, so they do come in and have a few chats. Should also note that as well as being a midwife, um, my wife also worked at the Royal Children's Hospital before she became a midwife. So she knows exactly, she knew exactly what was happening. She knew exactly what was being treated, exactly what were probably going to be the outcomes as well. Yeah, she, it's where she used to work. So she knew exactly what was happening, which... For us, I think, prepared us to know what we could be expecting. As soon as we heard specific words, we knew that, it, you know, we didn't have a choice. So I guess we turned that, we were told it was catastrophic. That was on the Thursday afternoon. You can't sit there and waste time because, you know, you've only got, you haven't got much time left. And, and, that, and that was up to us as well. They said you don't have to, like, She's not going to live when we decide to withdraw care, which means you're just removing the, the ventilator. She will most likely pass away quite quick. They weren't sure that she'd breathe at all um, when that was removed, so they thought it was going to be quite quick. And, and, the, and the ball was back in our court, so it was up to us um, what we wanted to do and how long we wanted to, I guess, have her with us. We needed a few days. Like it wasn't an automatic thing and it wasn't pushed on us to be all right, this needs to happen now. The hospital is fantastic. We decided Sunday would be right. It'd give us enough time for Ren to meet my or our brothers and sisters and Maddie's brothers and sisters and her grandparents and, and everything. So she did. Unfortunately, through COVID, she never got to meet any of her cousins, her little cousins, but she met her sister 
and her sister was just, yeah, smitten, as you can imagine. Still is. And still talks about her every day. But we, we, we spent the next two and a half days not crying. We spent them laughing and telling stories and, you know, reading books in a NICU is just, I got so much out of it. It was, I just sat there and I read. I read all the time. I loved it. It was fantastic. We could actually see the brains monitoring as well when we're reading books. When you were reading or stroking, you could see the, the monitoring would actually, the brains would they'd be registering. So she knew that we were there as well. She could, there was touch and there was, you know, we knew that Ren knew that she was loved, which was great. I guess it got to Saturday, one last day. So it was a beautiful sunny day. We organised with the hospital that we'd take her out, outside. So my parents and my wife's parents were there with our daughter Edie. We got her in a, we put Ren in a pram with a ventilator, mobile ventilator, and we pushed her outside and we sat as a big family. My parents got a cuddle. Maddie's parents got a cuddle. My dad has said that is one of the most incredible moments of his life was cuddling Ren. I've got the photo to prove it, which is just fantastic. Um, Edie was playing in the little sand pit behind us, and Edie still remembers that day as well. She still brings it up about without us prompting it, so she was still talking about that day where I was playing. We had Ren outside. She even tries to tell us that Ren turned her head and looked at her, which I think it might be just clutching its jaws a little bit for a little girl on a ventilator. But we know that Edie still remembers that playing that day, and it was it was fantastic. It was really it was beautiful. It was just like we're a normal family albeit for two hours on a Saturday afternoon at the Royal Children's Hospital, we just felt we were all happy. We got back to the room. It was about five o'clock and Maddie and I just looked at Ren and thought, yeah, it's time. Eight o'clock, she passed away. So we decided that she looked tired. We did what we had to do and we, we had photographers there from Heartfelt, an amazing organisation, just we didn't think they were coming and we we decided that yeah that it was that was she looked tired and we didn't want to keep her with us for our benefit like we wanted her to go I guess as much on her terms as possible so we did we decided that it was it was a perfect day and we yeah it was our time to to say goodbye thanks for sharing that mate it's um you know, you've got the strength of 10 men, <laughs> I think. Just, yeah, it's a, it's a very sad time. And uh, I wonder, and, and part of the reason, obviously, we've spoken about this, the reason why we're doing this is to provide some fathers with an understanding of of what it's been like for others. And and uh, and so with that, what, what advice would, would you give to other men who might be listening to this post, you know, just soon after or even years after? Don't be afraid to talk. Find your community. There is a community out there for you if you want it. I'll be it the dad's community and the lost community is not very big, but there is people out there, there is resources out there that can help you. You don't need to have 100 friends around you, you need to find a couple of really good ones. And that's where I was lucky. The mate who I went swimming with, he's always been a good friend. Just knowing that every Sunday morning I'd catch up with him and go for a swim. 
was enough because he'd let me talk about Ren. He might not have to ask any questions, but he it was it was half an hour that I could get stuff off my mind and tell him what we're up to. You don't need to tell you don't need a big group, you just need a core group of people that can help. And that's what I think I tried to do as much as possible. I'd stayed away from big groups. I didn't want to put myself into a position where I felt out of place or I didn't want to see people. So I didn't I didn't I didn't go out if I didn't want to. My father in law probably told us one of the best things the whole time was when we got home and I guess after Ren passed away, we had a it wasn't just pass away and that's it. I guess this that story just keeps on going from there as well. But the following day after we we had said a goodbye and she'd gone to the funeral home, father in law said, If you can just do one thing every day, make sure you do it. It can be walk fifty meters. Just make sure you get up and do something, accomplish something. So at the end of the day you can feel like you've done something and achieved something. Um, and that's kind of what we did. We walked to the end of the block first couple of days and that was it, 50 metres and home. And that was enough just to say, well, well we walked 50 metres today. Cool. We, we ticked that box. So it doesn't, you don't have to go and move mountains. You just need to start really small and start building up to bigger things. And in time, if you, you get your good group of friends, a core group around you can support you, then you'll eventually start learning to deal with or live with what you've been through there's good things and bad things about social media too. I've found social media really good, but I do know that if you put yourself out on social media, you're also open to people's opinions that you don't really like and that don't have anything to do with what you're going through. Social media has been good where you can find people that have been going through the same thing as, as you. So you can feel a connection. And I think the connection with someone who's been through it is also really important. How have you gone with having conversations with Edie around this you know, like that might be another uh, piece of advice you might be able to provide. Well, you always think your kids are pretty smart. We thought Edie was pretty smart. We just told her how it was. Your sister's sick. Your sister's died, which is pretty pretty blunt, but that's what had happened and we didn't want to tell her that anything else because it might create uh, confusion around what's happened. I'm not religious my wife's not religious, but we have used heaven as something to, so I guess it's it's a peaceful thing, I think, for a child to understand. And it's, it might be easier for a mum and dad to use heaven as something, as a, as a nice place that Ren's gone to. And then in time, Edie can make up her own mind if she does believe that Ren's gone to heaven or she may have gone somewhere else, depending on what her beliefs turn into when she grows up. Um, we haven't sugarcoated anything. And I know we spoke about it a little while ago. Edie as a three-and-a-half-year-old doesn't sugarcoat anything either. So wherever we go, Edie will tell someone that she's got a baby sister and a baby sister died. It's really brutal, but I wish more adults could speak like children when it comes to grief and, and loss. She just tells it how it is, and she's proud to talk about her sister just like I'm proud to be a dad. And are you still, like, having an intention of of bringing Ren into the conversation and we don't have to. We would if we thought we needed to. Edie brings up Ren all day. She, she'll bring Ren up once or twice a day. Doesn't need prompting. Ren's a big part of our family and our life. Albeit she had eight days with us, she's always going to be with us. And I think Edie will always be her biggest advocate as well. So, yeah, which is beautiful. Uh, 
Yeah. And did you know any other, did you reach out to any other men who had experienced this as well as, as part of your healing? Not really. I didn't really know. Well, I did. My, uh, my cousin, Alex, was still born. 30, I think she'd be 34. I apologise to Fiona and Peter if I've got this wrong. She was 34 this week, just gone. So I did know this happened, but in terms of close friends, no, I, I didn't have any friends who had been through or had told me that they'd been through a loss. So face-to-face-wise in our local community, no, I didn't know anyone. And it took a fair while to meet some people too and to know of people. It, it was quite hard to try and find a connection. But has that helped? Finding a connection with other people? Absolutely, yep. Talking to other people that have been through it, whether it be ahead of you in your journey or behind you, just talking to someone about their loss and being able to talk about your loss is really important because you've got a, your connection is your child and what you've been through. Although it might be a different story, there's so many things that are the same for parents. The stories are different, but there's so many things are the same, the feelings. And so, yeah, I've found it's been fantastic being able to meet and talk to other guys about their journeys and what they've been through and what's helped and what hasn't and that type of thing. Just things about work, you know, work and, and other things like that as well. And how has the parenting been? Has, has parenting changed, do you think? Did it change straight after or...? It was really hard. It, yeah, it, it, it's. I think probably the third night after we were home, after, um, after Ren had passed away, we were both crying. Not Edie. Edie was in bed. Madeline and I were crying in our lounge room because we couldn't get her to sleep, and we thought it was Edie's fault, but it was ours. It was. It was our state of mind. We. We just couldn't do it. We Then you kind of feel bad too because you think that you can't parent. Like all you want to be is a parent. That's why we had another child because we wanted to be parents again. And then you feel bad because you feel like you can't parent because Edie's, you can't get her to sleep. One of the simplest things you should be able to do is get your, you know help your kids to get your sleep. And we couldn't even do that. You know, our, our daughter's just died and now we can't even deal here. And all you want to be is a parent, but you can't do it. It's a really... It's a really hard time is parenting after you've been through a loss. Um, you've got a lot of emotions and then you're dealing with, I guess we're dealing with the toddler. So big emotions there too. And how did you get through? Is there any any bits of advice? that It just took, it just took time and recognising that it wasn't, it wasn't our daughter. It was kind of us that were the ones who needed to, not change, but it was just going to take time to get used to our new life what it was we called on help from our parents we were lucky if we had trouble they'd come over and help us get either to sleep um things like that so yeah we yeah wherever we could we called in help just to help us out whether just be putting it asleep or getting some meals or just little things to make it a little bit easier our, our, our life a little bit easier that's what we had to do and so you mentioned there, you, you quickly alluded to the idea that there was another pregnancy, and I understand you've got a you've got a fresh little baby in the house now. Yes, we do. How was navigating pregnancy after loss? It was one of the harder things to go through. Parenting after loss, I hadn't hadn't really heard anything about. I know it was really hard. 
I guess pregnancy after loss as a dad is something that I haven't really heard much about either or anything about. Also, it was hard. Picked up the counselling again, some counselling sessions towards the end of it. Tried to be, I guess, a bit more in the moment instead of looking at what if this happens and what if that happens. And then trying to, I guess, it all comes back to juggling a, a three-year-old into it too, trying to meet their needs. And, yeah, it was for the first. So Maddie fell pregnant I'm not sure exactly when she fell pregnant, maybe four months, five months after Rem was born. And then I guess we moved through all the milestones, you know, where you go through Father's Day without a child and we went to to Christmas without Rem, which is also really hard. There's always something, you know, then you've got New Year's, you know, it's a new year, but someone's not with you and then you've got your first birthday. Up until Rem's first birthday, I, I knew we had a, a baby boy coming, but a lot of our thoughts and my thoughts were going towards Ren's birthday and how was I going to navigate that and what do I do and you know, how do you celebrate a birthday of a child that's not longer physically here with us. So a lot of my time wasn't devoted to the pregnancy. Not as I, I, like, I couldn't wait to meet our little boy, but my mind was on Ren still. After Ren's anniversary in April, it quickly turned to, oh, shit, we've got six weeks left now. And it's the crunch. What if something happens again? Oh, it, it was a really, really hard time. Usually either Maddie or I would be in a good mindset and we could help each other. You know, if someone was a bit down, the other one would be fine. But we found ourselves getting into both of us into a pretty poor mindset. No matter what we do or how we try and help each other, when you're both down, you can't dig yourself out of the bad thoughts and what would make it worse as a like for me all I wanted to hear Maddie say was oh he's okay I've felt him kick four times and he's he, don't worry he's fine but when she's also worrying she's not feeling that so I'm not hearing that he's okay which makes me worried and then I worry her by asking how is he so it's just this perpetual kind of yeah nightmare of thoughts yeah like, yeah, all, all bad news about, oh, no, this, what if this happens again? I guess there was no easy way to get through it. It's, I wish there was an easy way to get through it, but there wasn't. Trying to be in the now, like thinking, okay, at this moment, yes, it's all good and that's all I can do. It's good now. Stop thinking six weeks ahead. That was one thing that we really tried hard to do. Yeah, it was, it was, it was hard. Hospital, I guess... Yeah, we had a lot of monitoring as well, not because anything went wrong with Ren, but because for our state of mind too. Um, so I do think it is important for people and dads and mums going through a subsequent pregnancy after losing a child to be upfront with the hospital, upfront with the team that you're working with at the hospital and make it known of what you need and make them, I guess, acknowledge your needs as a parent who's lost a child because if they don't know or you don't tell them what you need they can't may not be able to guess because there's no bereavement training there's no or little bereavement training so if you don't tell people what you want you may not get it so if you've got demands or you're feeling uncomfortable I'd say please speak to the people who you're dealing with at your local hospital and see if they can help so give us an example of one of those needs that you might need to communicate? So usually just for a, a monitoring, let's say monitoring, 
we ended up going up to the hospital three times a week for monitoring. Not a normal thing to do for a low-risk pregnancy, but it's something that we need for our mental health is check bubs on a Monday, a Wednesday, and a Friday. Get through the weekend, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. So we knew that we had something to look forward to. Yep, cool, Monday. And then, But then I guess with two to three weeks to go, that wasn't enough either. So we had a date that we were trying to get to, which was 38 weeks we were booked in for for Noah, which was the long – it was 38 and three. So it was going to be the longest pregnancy that Maddie had ever had, which just didn't really sit well mentally for us. Maddie had a lot of girlfriends that had their babies at 37. So that's what we ended up changing it to. We didn't convince the hospital. We spoke to the, the team that we had looking after us and everyone was on board that they were happy to have a, an elective Caesar on a boy at 37 weeks just for our mental health. We had the peds, doctors all on board with it. The obstetricians were on board. And we were really lucky too the way that I guess we'll, we'll jump to Noah being born. Um, after this, we, we got to that point and it was ready. We had meetings with the hospital how we wanted it to be and our hospital was phenomenal um, with staying clear of certain rooms. For me, I, I've, I get haunted by the clock in the waiting room uh, outside, but that's where I was going to have to sit when Maddie went in and to get her spinal for the Noah's birth. So I was going to have to sit in this same position where I was waiting for Ren to be born, looking at the same clock, which which kind of freaked me out. So the hospital made arrangements that I could sit elsewhere. And the hospital ended up making an arrangement that I could be in the room while that happened. So they didn't have to move me or move anyone. They were really good. And I think we're lucky, obviously, because my wife works there as well. But we also spoke up. We asked. We told what we wanted. We wanted to make it a really nice birth. And it was. He was born at... Quarter to two, 31st of May, he cried. He did what he was meant to do. And it was, yeah, it was a bit of a surreal feeling. Can you describe the relief? It's, I was, I think it was just, a, it was a weight off the shoulders because he was here and he was in our arms. It, yeah, just to know that he was here and we could look after him now was just, yeah, it was incredible. It, it felt different to what I thought it was going to feel like, but I'm happy it felt like it did. It just felt really nice to have him there and in our arms and safe. And healthy, yeah. And healthy, yeah. So, yeah, that was really important. And it was funny where I was sitting. So I'm sitting on my wife's side um, at her, up at her head and I, they've got the cloth in front of us, the, the sheet, so you don't see what happens the other side. But over the top there, there's a clock as well. So, I could, you know, there's a clock in every room. It doesn't mean much. But for me, I could look at a clock and now I've got a nice memory of this of a clock as well that I do remember the time was 1.43 by looking at it when he was born. So I've been able to, I guess, you know, two, <laughs> two clocks. One I sat there and turned my life upside down and then the next one I looked at when our little boy was born. So, Yeah. Uh, grief can be a real teacher in, in life. Uh, you know, death can teach us things. Is there anything that you can look back on now and you see yourself as that has changed that you, you, you kind of might have a, a different view of life? Yeah. Probably one of the things that I I haven't really spoken about is I'm I'm not scared to die after being there for Ren passing away. 
I didn't mention it. Ren's death was just, it was beautiful. It wasn't scary. We weren't crying. It was one of the most surreal feelings. We missed out on her first breaths when she was born, but we got to lay there and we shared her last with her. The doctor had told us that she probably wasn't going to breathe. She breathed. She was on our chest, chest to chest. Half an hour she had where she was there breathing on us. She was she was living all on her own. No, no machines, no nothing. It was just us and our little girl. I was scared of her dying, but when she was there in that moment, it was just so peaceful and so beautiful. And from that I've taken, I'm not personally scared of death. I don't want to die, but I'm not scared of it. It's changed my perspective on it. It can be beautiful as well. And just because I think just because Ren passed away that day, it doesn't make it the worst day of my life. Like a lot of people might think it is, oh, that'd have to be the worst day of your life. It wasn't. It was a beautiful day that we got to share as a little family. It was really special and I wouldn't change anything about that day. So, yeah, I hope that makes sense. Oh, absolutely. And how about you guys, uh, you know, that your partner, Maddie, yourself, like your relationship also, you know, you, your family, you've got to keep your family together. And have you got any advice for blokes? Uh, maybe just sharing what you've you've learnt about your, your partner in that time as well. How do you support her? How do you support yourself and the relationship? What I, what I figured out pretty early on is my wife and I have, we grieve differently. I grieve a different way to her. So I figured out pretty quickly um, sometimes she doesn't want to talk and if she doesn't want to talk, I don't talk about it. We come to an agreement that we j- it's a, just a bit of respect between the two, knowing how to look after each other, I guess. But, no, it's a, it's a funny one. When you're in it, you know, but now that that initial grief has passed, you, I don't know if you forget how you got through it. I think you just find a way that you can, and it is by talking, not all the time. Like you don't have to talk all the time. But there's things you do need to discuss, you know, where, what are we what are we going to do? What's next? How do we do this? Being honest as well with each other. I guess when you're moving through that, you've lost the child, but then all you want is to have a child too. You've got to start. It doesn't just happen. You've got to become intimate again, don't you? Which is a pretty weird feeling when you're full on in grief trying to be intimate and have kids, another kid, it's, you know, it's not like you're young anymore. Like it's, it's yeah, it's a, it's a really complex thing to try and navigate, but you've got to just make sure you're both on the same page. Yeah, I think you, I think you nailed it with the first, the first answer. The first thing you said was uh, you realised really quickly that uh, you were grieving differently. And I think that that's, that's probably one of the, the takeaways for me from what you've been saying it, as far as, you know, that relationship is concerned with your partner, I think people grieve at different rates. There's no doubt about it. And differently, you know, there's different ways and there's no judgment on that. You can't judge the other person's, you know, ability to get over it or not not over it. Uh, I think that can, that can probably cause some, you know, some rifts in the relationship if you're kind of expecting someone to still be grieving and you might have moved through, uh, you know, kind of part of it. So, yeah. 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 I've been saying that we'd have we'd have nights where, you know, early on every night we'd cry, which is normal. And then it might not be every night. It might be 
every second night. And then it might be four times in one day. And then it might be all day. And then as time goes on, you find that, you know, that outpouring of a cry might be less, but it doesn't mean you're not thinking of some of the sadder times. I personally have tried to think of the really nice times, like our what we what we got with Ren um, was more than some parents do get. I know it was only eight days, but that's eight days more than some people do get. So I tried to spin it as, well, we're lucky we got the eight days. And I wouldn't change anything with them eight days. I've taken out so many beautiful memories of her life, albeit eight days. I've got just a lifetime of memories in there from our time with Ren. It can be as simple as reading books. We painted her nails as well. That's something We painted her nails bright pink when she was in NICU. Two days old, she had these hot pink nails, toenails and fingernails. I still have pink nails to this day. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Still got them now. Um, I haven't been able to stop. A lot of our friends still wear pink nails too. We, we tried to make positives where we can. We don't force ourselves to be positive if we can't be, but I think trying to take the positives where we can as opposed to thinking about what ifs and have we done something different. So I, I love it that my dad tells me that it was the best day that he got to cuddle Ren. You know, that for me is just so special. And that was the day that she passed away. But that's a good memory for me on that day. Playing in the park, that was a good memory. Painting her nails, you know, all these really beautiful little things is what we reflect on now. And so you've moved through this, you know, significant kind of change in your life. And what would you tell yourself you know, your younger self about what, maybe what you've learned and, you know, if you had an opportunity to kind of provide advice. Make the most of your time with, I guess, who you've got and what you're doing because you don't know what's around the corner. It might not be a big change, as big as this, but just make the most of what you do with who you're doing it with. I think that even now for me, I like spending a lot of time with my parents and my grandparents who are still here because you just don't know if you can pass away at eight days old well you can pass away at any time can't you so you've kind of got to make the most of any opportunity you've got with life and you've you've also I, you've started something called love from dad as well uh, and you've you've also been volunteering with this uh, this other charity can you tell us a little bit about maybe what you're doing now and why yeah so with the charity I'm involved in I, I wanted to make sure that dads were represented as well. Dads and partners were represented with resources. And unfortunately, there, there is resources out there in Australia, but there's not there's not the resources like you can find elsewhere. Um, there's a lot of money goes into this space, into the loss and grief space, but I don't think what comes out of it, there's not, there should be more there for dads. Um, so I wanted to try and do my little bit and build a little community for dads out there who have been through loss. So I, through We've Got You, uh, the, the charity, I was looking after the dads bit and the dads bit, I realised that I couldn't just do something in our little area because there just wasn't the people in our area that would be able to set it up. So I decided to build a website called Love From Dad. That website I'm using to share dad's stories because I've found a connection through reading other people's stories of loss. There isn't a lot of places that you can share your story. So I, I'm not very computer literate, but I managed to build a website with a little bit of help from my wife. So on that, we've got a blog, which is dads sharing stories. And that could be 
any loss story or any fertility struggles. Um, there's an incredible one there on miscarriage at the moment. Um, the last, the last one, um, navigating fertility issues and miscarriages. It beautifully written, and so are the other stories that have been sent in as well. These, these dads from all around Australia have written in because they wanted to tell their story, and they want people to read their stories of their kids. They want to be their kids' dads, and this is. I've just created this little little place where they can. Also got links to podcasts and books, different Facebook groups, different WhatsApp groups, different online groups. So it's like a resource hub for dads who have experienced loss. Exactly. So it's, I've tried to put it all in the one place. So instead of scrolling around the internet looking for different things and clicking on different links, I've tried to make it all in one place where you can go and see all your podcasts that are directly related to the loss. I've tried to find all the I've, I've been buying books and reading books and uploading the books onto that as well. So you can click on a link. It'll take you to Amazon and you can buy a book if you want. And then you've got links to like your Bears of Hope, Beards of Hope, Red Nose, their support services as well, which are the big ones in Australia. The Red Nose men's online group, you know, once a month type of thing. Bears of Hope, Beards of Hope men's group online. Got links to all these as well, all in the one place with the aim of, I link it through a through an Instagram page, but the Instagram page isn't there as a personal Instagram page for me. It's to advise people when there is a new blog post up on the website so that they can then tell people if they think that someone might benefit from it, that they can jump on and say, hey, such and such, you know, there's a new story being put up, you might want to have a look at it. And I've found through Instagram as well is the majority of the followers are ladies, mums or, or wives. So I'm, I'm hoping that the idea is if you reach mum, then they can tell dad about it. So, you know, that's, the, that's my theory behind it anyway, is it can get to mum and they can pass it on to dad. And how can, how can guys find that? Love, L-O-V-E, from dad, F-R-O-M-D-A-D, uh, .com.au on the web. And it's love.from.dad on Instagram. Pretty simple. Uh, yeah, they're the two things that I'm working with at the moment. And I guess if anyone ever wants to jump on, if you want to tell a story, that's what it's there for. I'm contactable via email or um, Instagram or whatever. And you'll just get me. It's not a big, I'm not a charity. It's like I'm not red. I'm, I'm just me who's built a website to try and do my bit to help out others going through this because I think there's a, it's something we're in, we're missing this in Australia. There's just not, not what they should be. Yeah, mate. You're just little old you, but little old you's changed the world, remember? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you. So good, like, like good on you. Good on you for that. And uh, look, that's amazing. I'll make sure, be sure to actually put those those websites and everything on on the show notes for this. But um, I guess I will I will ask you one more question. Like, is there anything else you would you feel we haven't covered? Anything else you'd like to share? No, I think we're probably pretty good. I think we've spoken about Ren enough to keep me happy today. Um, no, nah, it, it's 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 an honour to be able to speak as a dad. I don't get many chances to speak about Ren because it's it just the way life is. You just don't get to. Probably just touching on the, one of the most incredible things that I've been a part of was the run Melbourne a few weeks ago when we're part of Team Sylvie Sunshine. And that morning I got to the event and a lady came up to me and said, oh, you're Ren's dad. 
that 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 is the moment that you just remember. That that is the most beautiful part of the day because when I drop Edie off at daycare, I'm Edie's dad. And when I take Edie to kinder, I'm Edie's dad. And when we go to the shops, I might be, oh, oh, you're Noah's dad. But that one day I was Ren's dad. And they're the days that are the really good days. Well said, mate. So, yeah, a day where I'm referred to as Ren's dad is a beautiful day. Well, I, on behalf of everyone who may be listening to this, uh, like, thank you for for sharing so uh, vulnerably and uh, and just for you know shining some light on this real avenue of paternity that fathers that we we really do need a bit of support around some of this i think sometimes and i find that i hear guys saying there isn't much opportunity for that for men uh but um look we're going to be hopefully moving into that space you know further on down the line as we try and provide more more and more support for dads out there so thanks again mate well done uh, thank you very much and um i think it's important as well that in this space that i'm in it's not to take away from mum either it's just to give more support to dad because if dad needs support we can't also help mum as well so we've got to lift the supports up for dad so they can also help mum through their grief well said thanks so much mate I'd like to acknowledge the Darawal people as the traditional custodians of the land upon which this podcast is recorded. And I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging.